Hi, I'm Trent England with Save Our States. Welcome to a special edition of our Six Questions podcast. I'm, uh, I'm excited for this one. It is the, uh, the week of Independence Day, uh, sort of. I guess Independence Day is, we're recording this really the week before Independence Day, uh, which is a Monday, but uh, we all get a, a three-day weekend. Hopefully you do too. And, uh, and in honor of it, it being a holiday weekend, we're going to do something a little bit different. Our producer, Harry Roth, who does an amazing job uh, finding the guests and uh, putting together the questions and, and pushing the podcast out on all of the social media channels we can find, uh, Harry is going to interview me. So I get to answer the questions today instead of asking them. And Harry, I'll pass it over to you. Well, thank you, Trent. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to be interviewing Trent today. Uh, so we have some independent, uh, Declaration of Independence related questions. So let's definitely get started on that. So 4th of July, Independence Day is approaching, like you mentioned. Tell the listeners a little bit about the history of Independence Day as a holiday in America and why it's important to celebrate the adoption of the Declaration. Yeah, so this is something I have been really interested in for a while because, you know, one thing people who are kind of into the history of Independence Day oftentimes know is that, you know, John Adams wrote this letter about how you know, this day would be celebrated with bonfires and illuminations and solemn acts of devotion to Almighty God. But people forget that Adams was actually writing that about July 2nd, not July 4th. And I mean, I really think that this tells us a lot about our country and the nature of our country. You look around at other peoples, other nations around the world, and typically their, their Independence Day or their National Day, you know, most countries have something like that, is the day that celebrates a military victory uh, or some political act, right? You know, so it's, you know, we beat so-and-so or the war ended or we signed a treaty. I mean, our Independence Day is really weird because... Uh, you know, John Adams thought it would be July 2nd because that was the day the Continental Congress passed a resolution for independence. So if you're a lawyerly guy, and John Adams certainly was a lawyerly guy, you're like, well, July 2nd, right? Like we, you know, we voted on this resolution. It's a very short resolution, you know, basically said we're independent. Uh, but we don't celebrate that day. We celebrate the statement of principles, really, which is which is very different. I've never found another country that celebrates that that kind of statement, right? And, and there really aren't that many countries that have a statement of principles like our declaration that really provides a philosophy, a, you know, a, a very deep mission statement based on truth claims about who human beings are, right? That we are created by God and that, uh, you know, we are imprinted with human rights, they are inalienable, they're inherent to our nature, and that governments can only legitimately exist based on some, some kind of consent from the populace. That's, a, that's probably the toughest concept that's in there, uh, but they can only legitimately exist also to protect those rights. And when they violate those rights, uh, then people have, you know, a right to, uh, to push back. And ultimately, at some you know, at some uh, level, people have a right to revolution. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I, I think it's really, it's really remarkable and very meaningful when we think about July 4th, not just as Independence Day, but really as Declaration of Independence Day. It's a day yeah. that's about these principles. So for the second question, Trent, uh, King George III is regarded as a tyrant by the signers of the Declaration of Independence for violating their English rights. 
Um, but was King George III as bad as the founders described? Was he worse? I, I mean, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, people don't, people don't always think about that as much as we should. I, I think I mean, partly because that was, that was one of the debates that the founders had, right? I mean, how bad is this really, right? And, you know, as, as I mentioned, talking about the Declaration of Independence, there's this element of prudence. And then the declaration, you know, mentions prudence explicitly, uh, right? The idea that uh, that even if your government's abusive, you you got to be smart about it, right? You you don't, you know, governments are never going to be perfect because they're always going to be human. So, um, you know, every time government does something wrong, you shouldn't have a revolution, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, yeah, you know, and I think that some of the founders or or their generation the, the the leading statesmen of the day made a good argument that that the british government the king wasn't nearly as oppressive as some of our more fiery friends suggested people like john adams and patrick henry and I think that's, in a way, I think that's very fair, right? And people, you know, oftentimes will point out today, I mean, you know, the tax on tea was specifically designed uh, because it was coupled with this mercantile system where the British controlled the prices, uh, you know, they didn't, it wasn't just setting taxes, it was also setting the prices. And so part of what they did was at a certain point, they said, well, we're going to tax your tea, but we're going to manipulate the prices so that the prices actually go down so that the total amount you're paying is less. And, you know, and, and so from one perspective, you could say, well, well, you know, who would have a problem with that? And after all, we're talking about minuscule taxes. I mean, the tax burden then compared to the tax burden today <laughs> was, yeah, I mean, it was insignificant. But people like John Adams pointed out, and I think this is right. I, I would take their side in the argument. And I think this, I think this can inform us today, not just in, in the United States, but in, in other countries around the world. You know, John Adams' argument was if you were on a ship, and I'm obviously paraphrasing this, but, uh, but if, if you're sailing across the Atlantic on a ship and you're supposed to be headed for, let's say, London, and the ship, you notice the, the ship's course is actually steered toward Algiers. And, and the ship is heading toward the ports where Europeans were sold into slavery in the kingdoms in North Africa. Uh, and you, 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 know, you told the captain, you said, I, I think we're heading the wrong way. And the captain said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll turn our, our course back. And the captain turns his course back. But the next day, you notice you're, you're actually sailing towards those ports where they sell people into slavery. Adam says, You'd be a fool to wait until the ship docks, right? And, and you, are being, you are being offloaded to the slave auction, right? To, uh, to, to, to actually do something about it, right? Beyond just sort of uh, your, your remonstrances, your, your petitions for redress, right? And, and I, think that's a, I think that's sort of self-evidently true. I, I mean, I love the, the example, right? And the example would be even more poignant uh, at, at that time, obviously. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the founders recognized that the real threat that they faced was the, the claim that the British government was making, the claim that King George III was making, that, that their governance of the colonies really meant 
that that they had ultimate control and that the the whole idea of consent of the governed within the colonies or of British rights was all subservient to the idea that you know the king had granted these charters and so therefore you know the the king ultimately could take them away could dissolve their their uh, their own legislatures and things like that. So I mean, in that sense, he was just as bad as they claimed. Um, but I, I think that you know you have to you have to credit some of the arguments made by uh, men like John Dickinson that um, that well, you know that that what was actually happening right didn't didn't look like like tyranny or or like at least the the worst kind of tyranny that, that you might imagine. You had to extrapolate that out. So. Uh, yeah, the answer is sort of, sort of both, uh, both and. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's uh, definitely a very interesting figure he was. Uh, but for the third question, I started working at Save Our States about three years ago, but you've been doing this since 2009 with Save Our States. Uh, tell the listeners how and why you started Save Our States. Yeah, this, uh, you know, I, I never thought that um, uh, before that, that, you know, defending the Electoral College would, would become something that was, uh, you know, basically a, a full-time job. And, you know, as you mentioned, Harry, for, for you and, and for the other members of our team, this has become a, uh, you know, a, a huge issue. And, you know, it's something I, I got interested in this back in the 1990s. So really before, you know, before anybody was talking about the Electoral College, right, this is before Bush v. Gore and all of that. Uh, but, uh, but I had a professor named Michael Yulman who taught at Claremont McKenna College where, uh, where I got my undergraduate degree. And, Mike had been on the staff of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in the 1970s, and there had been a proposal and really one of a series of proposals that had popped up in Congress starting in the late 50s and running through 1979. Uh, It seemed like, you know, every few years there were people trying to push a constitutional amendment through Congress that would abolish the Electoral College or, you know, or change it. To, to some really extreme degree. And, uh, and, and Mike wrote a report on the importance of the Electoral College. It, it became the minority report, basically for the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, and it was credited, and this is very unusual, if anyone knows anything about Congress, uh, his report was credited with actually changing the minds of several US senators and quite possibly stopping that amendment. Um, and it, it remains one of the most, uh, the most erudite, uh, the most well-informed, well-written defenses of the Electoral College ever. Uh, and uh, uh, and he, he was a professor of mine. And as we, as we talked about this in class, I thought, you know, this, the Electoral College really captures the, the framers understanding, right, that, that government power rests ultimately with the people. But that's not, a, that doesn't mean majoritarian tyranny, right? That doesn't mean this, this idea of sort of a simple, direct democracy where, you know, if you can put together a plurality, you get whatever you want. Because ultimately, back to the Declaration, I mean, government is only legitimate if it is operating within uh, a sphere of legitimacy, right? If it, if it is defending people's rights, if it, if it starts, uh, you know, if it starts, uh, you know, tyrannizing people, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's if it's done at the hands of a single king 
or at the hands of a majority. And I think this is, this is something Americans have just forgotten. I mean, to our great discredit, right? That, uh, I mean, people, people talk all the time about, you know, this is what the people want. That's what the people want. I've got a public opinion poll that shows this. Well, I've got a public opinion poll that shows the opposite. Well, look at this election result. Look at that election result, right? I mean, you know, all of that has obvious relevance in a, uh, in a system that is based on elections, right? But none of it has any moral relevance, right? None of it tells us whether a public policy is right or wrong. And, you know, this, that kind of discourse becomes a zero-sum game. It's just all about power. And I think it's part of why our politics has become so nasty and so divisive and people can't talk to each other because at, at least among the founders, and, you know, I mean, their politics was divisive enough that every once in a while they shot each other, right? Uh, just ask Alexander Hamilton. Uh, so, they, I mean, they still have all the personal aspects of it, but if your politics at some level are based on principles and every, everyone kind of inherently agrees that there is right and wrong and there are some things that government can't do, then you're, you're never making this claim that, well, you know, I don't have to defend, I don't have to defend my public policies to you on moral grounds. I just have to go out and convince a few more people uh, for, you know, that they should support these policies, even if it's just for crass self reasons of self-interest, right? Uh, or party politics or whatever. But if, if by hook or by crook, I can get, get more people to back me than, than the people who back you, then we can steamroll over you and do whatever we want to you, right? That's, I mean, that's sort of an obviously toxic form of politics. Uh, so uh, I, I think the Electoral College captures that idea, right? It, it's, it, it is a multi-step democratic process, it's still democratic, but these checks and balances are built in. It shapes how political uh, coalitions are built, which shapes how our national politics uh, are formed in a very organic way, right? It doesn't say you have to do this. It just creates these incentives so that the political parties have to be more national, which means they have to be more diverse. You get big coalitions, not these narrow little factional parties that you see in, in a lot of other kinds of political systems. And you know, to me, and there's a lot of other benefits of the Electoral College as well, but to me, you know, right at the base of it, right, you, you have this idea that government is about more than just majority tyranny. And, uh, and so I love going out and educating people about the Electoral College because I think it, it just helps us to walk through that, that understanding. And in a way, it points us back to the Declaration of Independence. So glad to be talking about it this week. No, that's great. And, and honestly, we've seen the news cycle the last few weeks. All you're hearing about now is tyranny of the minority. No one cares, it seems like, or even thinks about maybe the majority can rule us as well. Maybe it's bad if just 51 percent rules over the, you know, the 49 percent. So it's good to bring that up and talk about that, actually. And there's not enough focus on it. Uh, so for the fourth question, uh, you testified around the country on behalf of Save Our States. Uh, what's your best memory working to defend the Electoral College? So there are there are two Save Our States memories that really stand out to me. And uh you know, one was going up to Vermont, which uh, in, in a certain sense that I'll describe as my favorite state legislature, uh, which might, you know, which, which might surprise some people because obviously <laughs> Vermont's a, a pretty left-leaning state most of the time. But when you go up to their state capital, well, I'll just describe my experience. I, I got, there, it, was, it was in the winter, I drove in, I, I, I had been going from capital to capital uh, in a rental car in the Northeast in the winter, because that's when state legislatures meet and uh, meeting with state legislatures sort of everywhere I could find them. And I, I pulled into Montpelier and 
you know, typically you go to a state legislature and there's the Capitol and then there's an office building or, you know, in some cases, multiple office buildings. And that's where the legislature, you know, that's where their offices are and their staff are and all that. And I couldn't, the, the Capitol was up on a, up on a little hill. It's a little, and it's a small Capitol building. And I thought, well, that's a small Capitol building. So obviously there's an office building somewhere around here. The only office building uh, I saw was down at the base of the hill. And I walked in there and it was, it was like the DMV. <laughs> and they were, they were confused to see me. I was confused to see them. And they said, we go to the legislature. You got to go up the hill. You go to the Capitol. And so I, you know, I, I walked up through the snow and I opened the big door and it's like a hive. I mean, it, it was, it was surreal. It's like, like in the movies. I mean, it's like, you know, going from one, one dimension to another dimension um, inside that little building uh, the, the, and, and it's, it's legislators themselves. They have no personal offices. They have no personal staff. They either work from their seat in a committee room or from their desk on the floor of the legislature. Uh, you know, it was like stepping back into the 19th century uh, or for that matter, the 18th century, uh, where, where legislators were actually doing their own work they were talking to people directly. All of their constituents have their cell phone numbers if they want them. And they don't, probably don't need them because they see them in the grocery store because you know a, a house member in Vermont represents a few thousand people, right? It's just, a, it's, a different, it's a different way of doing state government that I really appreciate. And, uh, and I think that other states could benefit from looking at the model of some of those states in the Northeast, like Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, where I, I think that I think there is, there's more accountability to the people, which means that the, the party labels matter less. And, uh, you know, even though there were a lot of people up, up in Vermont I disagreed with, I found the legislators there to be uh, very, very personable and uh, you know, sort of relatively like open-minded in a, in a good way. Right. So that, that was one, the other, I'll just mention quickly was in Connecticut where um, I, which is kind of the, the polar opposite Connecticut legislatures like Congress, they've got all these marble buildings and all these, you know, all these TV screens everywhere. It's all very sophisticated, but I, I went there to testify at a hearing and um, uh, several members of the committee really wanted to have a debate with me and I wound up testifying for over 40 minutes, which is really odd. And it was like, I mean, it was this free ranging conversation back and forth with multiple legislators talking about the Electoral College and all this. It was really, um, I mean, I really enjoyed it because I felt like we actually dug into some of these questions, uh, which you don't always get to do in a legislative hearing. And it was televised and uh, you know, people can still go and find it. And I, I think, uh, uh, I, I think we actually had a, a pretty good exchange of ideas, uh, you know, especially for for being a part of the legislative process like that. So that 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 was fun. I, I still uh, I still have fond memories of my my Connecticut and Vermont friends. No, that's very nice. I mean, I think more states should probably be a little bit like Vermont instead of uh, New York, where they pay them, you know, six figure salaries. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're so disconnected from the people. Um, so for the fifth questions. Uh, what, for the fifth question, what can Americans in 2022 learn from the Declaration of Independence? Do you believe that its message is an enduring one? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that uh, I, I really do think on this Fourth of July. You know, if you're if you're catching this podcast at the beginning of the weekend when it when it first comes out, uh, I mean, take take a minute 
to look at those first paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, and, then, and then, you know, you read the whole thing. It's not that long, but you can read the first two paragraphs and then flip over to the last couple of paragraphs. And, uh, you know, that's really that's really kind of the heart of, of the, the document um, in, a, in a sense. And and think about how radical that idea was in 1776 at a time when most people in the world had no say in their government at all. They had nothing like civil rights. Uh, they, they, you know, their governments did not respect anything like the natural rights of, of human beings as described in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that, those were topics that philosophers had been debating for thousands of years. You go back to uh, the Greeks in the uh, 5th century BC and find them debating these topics, right? Um, and, you know, and find Athens sort of flirting with the idea of government by consent, uh, but in a very limited way. Um, and, you know, just think about how radical those ideas were then. And then think about how radical those ideas are today, because, I mean, we see governments around the world today that don't operate that way. And, you know, as, as I described, even in our own politics today, we often don't operate that way. I think the most relevant for, for our moment in American politics, I think the most relevant part of the declaration is this. If we believe that all people have inherent human rights and that government to be legitimate needs to operate with the consent of the governed, then my obligation, your obligation um, is, is not to operate in politics as if it is that zero sum power game. Our obligation is to go out and address our fellow citizens as fellow human beings who have as much right to their opinions, their ideas, their vote as we have, and to, to have a politics based on persuasion and education, right? Which is the antidote to the, to the nastiness that we see out there, right? And I mean, it's, you know, you'll see people, and I certainly do this, I think we all do this if we're in politics, right? One moment we're complaining about how nasty it is, and the next moment we're getting mad, right? It's hard not to do that. But, but all of us, right, should, we, we should be constantly driving ourselves back to if, if, my, if, if what I'm all about is the idea that people are equal and people have rights and we have you know, government by consent, then my personal politics should be about persuading people, winning people over, not berating people, not sidelining people, not, uh, you know, not, not trying to steamroll over the other side right? Uh, winning in politics should be about winning people over. And that means, you know, that means trying to make arguments that, that appeal to people, that people can understand. So I, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that to me, I mean, the declaration means a lot, but that, that certainly is one of the things that the declaration means that I, I really try to cling to because, you know, it's, it's tough. Very true. So the sixth question is, is the same question as always. So Trent, who is your favorite founding father and why? So, uh, you know, there's so many good choices, and we've had a lot of people on the podcast who said George Washington. So I'm not going to say that, even though it really, I mean, it's, it is hard to get around that because Washington was the indispensable man. I mean, you know, I think if you ask King George III, right, uh, <laughs> who, who was the most remarkable founding father, he clearly would say Washington. I mean, the fact that Washington stepped away from power, uh, you know, to, to, to King George, you know, I mean, he acknowledged this, right, was, was just an epiphany, right? Nobody does that. Uh, but I'll say Alexander Hamilton. I, 
I think that Hamilton really was, in a certain sense, the first American because he, I mean, he came to the United States as an immigrant and, uh, and he had to make a way for himself, right? He didn't, he didn't inherit anything of any value. What he did inherit, right, was, was uh, not helpful to him. And he had to endure people, you know, making fun of his uh, his uh, parentage uh, and uh, and all that, right? I mean, Hamilton uh, and and the difference that that created, you know. And, I, and I'm a I'm certainly a fan of Thomas Jefferson as well, but Jefferson, uh, you know, he he inherited his land, he inherited his wealth, um, he he was a brilliant political philosopher. Um, but he wasn't a practical man. Um, and Hamilton managed to be a practical man and then drive that back into his politics, right? And so his, he recognized that, you know, the, the kind of economic system that Jefferson wanted um, really, really wouldn't allow people to rise, right? This, the whole, the agrarian system that Jefferson uh, championed was a system that tended to, to support the status quo. And tended to be, you know, for all of Jefferson's rhetoric, his economic system tended to, to produce stratified classes uh, and in uh, a lack of mobility. And that system, I think history shows, is not friendly to the idea of human rights. It's not friendly to the idea of limited government. And in uh, Hamilton's system, where people really people believe that they can rise. Because they, you know, not not because it's make believe, but because they see other people rising, right? Other people are able to succeed, uh, and, and and it's a you know partly the creation of their own hard work, right? So when people see that, then they believe in the system, and then you have you can have poor people and millionaires who see their interest in the political system the same, because the poor person believes he can become a millionaire. And the millionaire knows that it's it's quite possible that he or his heirs, at least, will fall down the economic ladder, right? If if they're not out there striving hard as well, and so, uh, you know, I think that has been the the magic of America, especially in the 19th century, um, that has pulled people out of poverty and created all this innovation, created all this wealth, and and all this optimism that, you know, we we uh, we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Is just you know even Australia looks like a very similar place to the United States in, in some ways, uh, but uh, but it just it, it's different here, and I think Hamilton is to me the beginning of of that very fundamental uh, difference in what it means to be an American. Yeah, Hamilton may be the only founder that actually gets the credit he deserves because they have the play, you know. So everyone loves <laughs> Hamilton, but Hamilton really was great. I think his death shows how great of a man he was. He could have killed Aaron Burr. He knew how to shoot a gun. He, he didn't want to. He didn't. He yeah. purposely missed his first yeah. shot. I think that says so much about the man. He was willing to die before he, he could be a barbarian like that. I mean, he was really a, a great person, uh, Alexander Hamilton. So I think it's yeah. a great answer. <laughs> no, and I, I think the musical does. It, it, brings, it brings that out about Hamilton. And I, I think he had this, he had this inner fire that uh, that comes through in a lot of his writings. As a younger man, it, it's it's closer to the surface, and as an older man, it's 
it's a little more subdued, but it's just still there. And, and, it, and, and some of that comes through in, in, you know, in ways that are a little, uh, a little challenging. You know, he, he was certainly was a volatile person. And I think sometimes people look at Hamilton, they don't like him for that reason, because they see him as, uh, you know, they, they see his failings because he owned up to his failings, uh, in, in, you know, in, in sort of remarkable <laughs> you know, ways. Uh, but, uh, you know, but they, they missed that, that uh, you know, in a sense, Hamilton was much more transparent because Jefferson, you know, Jefferson sort of maintained the statesman-like, uh, uh, you know, appearance. And then behind the scenes, he's paying James Callender to go do, you know, smear jobs on his opponents. Uh, and then, and then of course, when he doesn't, when he doesn't pay off James Callender, then James Callender does the, the smear job back on him with regards to Sally Hemings, which, you know, which is, I, I, to me, it's just sort of Jefferson's uh, comeuppance, right? It's, he finally got what he deserved, but he never owned up to it. Uh, which, you know, people have different opinions on, on the, the truth of, of all that, but, uh, you know, but Hamilton, uh, he, he, he owned it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, perfect. I think it's, uh, it's definitely been a great episode of six questions. I'm happy to interview you. Uh, I love the subject of declaration of independence. So I, I guess, uh, see us out, Trent. Thanks so much, Harry. Thanks to all of you for watching this special edition of our Six Questions podcast. Thanks for being a part of what we do at Save Our States. Our, the power of our defense of the Electoral College really is about you taking our, our educational materials that you can find at saveourstates.com, uh, podcasts like this, and our, uh, our film Safeguard, an Electoral College story, which you can find on Amazon and on the streaming service Tubi, and sharing those with your friends, your kids, uh, your acquaintances, that is uh, that is right at the core of our defense of the Electoral College. As I said before, it's, it's persuading people, educating Americans. That's what we like to do. So thank you for being a part of it. We'll see you next week.